Discussions in this show should not be construed as specific recommendations or investment advice. Always consult with your investment professional before making important investment decisions. Securities offered through registered representatives of Cambridge Investment Research, a broker-dealer, member FINRA SIPC. Advisory services through Cambridge Investment Research Advisors Incorporated, a registered investment advisor. Cambridge and Cornerstone Financial Consultants are not affiliated. Journey Mindset Podcast. My name is Sean Ulrich and I'm a financial advisor at Cornerstone Financial in Washington, Missouri. And I am joined today, as always, by my co-host Ron Shear. And Ron is a former financial advisor with a wealth of knowledge on all things investing. So we are lucky to have him today. And Ron, what is one thing you are doing to enjoy your journey this week? Well, I tell you what, we've had a, uh, a great week. We got to see uh, all of the kids, uh, surviving kids, uh, our uh, two daughters and our son that lives in St. Charles. And, and uh, that with that, coupled with that, we got to see our grandkids. So that was always fun. And, uh, uh, but I, I am reminded about one thing, and that's, uh, you know, God, for a good reason, gives you children when you're young. Not, <laughs> it's, it's not the greatest thing, I guess, if grandparents have to raise their grandkids. It, uh, hmm. I don't think it'd work for me. I'm not saying I wouldn't do it or that couldn't do it, but I don't think I'd be happy about doing it. But yeah, we've had a great week and uh, it's been fun to see the family. So how about you? I just got to take a trip down to Louisiana. You and I were talking about that pre-show and you know, I love it down there. You know, I love the food. I love the people. Well, the people are just so different. They're so much laid back Mm. and uh, they, they really, they really draw and suck out all the sweetness of life. I mean, I think they do. Yeah. And up here, I don't, I don't know that we, you know, we're too busy chasing our tails to, to actually do that sometimes. <laughs> Down there, it's not so. I definitely have a good amount of friends that have just an incredible amount of contentment with what they're doing. Right. And that's contagious. I like that. I'm like, man, we could just take it easy a lot of the time. So. Our topic for today, Ron, is going to be learning from Warren Buffett's 1995 Berkshire Hathaway shareholder letters. Good old Uncle Warren. Good old the Oracle of Omaha. We're going to be talking about him, Uh, specifically the 1995 shareholder letter. letter. So before we get into our topic for today, Ron, let's get into some notable events in the year 1995. Michael Jordan returned to the NBA after his brief stint in professional baseball. DVDs were invented, and I got to say, I still got a lot of those in my apartment. A lot of good memories. And then Toy Story came out. I don't know if you're a Toy Story fan, but oh, I like sure. some of those Disney movies. Well, I do too. I like Toy Story. PlayStation came out. Bill Gates became the richest man in the world. Mariah Carey became super popular. I don't know if you were listening to Mariah Carey at all. Well, I have. It's not mm. my genre per se, but still, you know, I have appreciation for uh, many mm. kinds of music, and, and hers included. Absolutely. And I was also two years old. (laughs) (laughs) That's disgusting. And and I'm fond of saying this. I have socks older than that. (laughs) All right. Well, that's a that's a that's a great take on 1995. So jumping back into our topic, we're going to be looking at the 1995 Berkshire Hathaway shareholder letter and how Warren Buffett navigated markets that really had performed well, similar to this past year in 2020. And just to catch people up to speed, Warren Buffett is widely considered to be one of the most in, uh, famous investors of mm-hmm. all time. Right. 
And uh, we have talked about him on a previous show. And according to Forbes, he currently sits as the seventh richest person in the world, valued at $88.5 billion. That's a few dollars. I know, right? One of the more interesting things that uh, Warren Buffett has ever done in his career is every year he'll have an annual shareholders meeting. And he'll also send out a letter for people like us or shareholders to be able to read to better understand why he made the investment decisions that he made. And what's really cool is when you track this over a long period of time, it really gives a sense of what he believed to be important, what we can learn, and really how to navigate some of these market environments that tend to repeat themselves over time. So what can our listeners count on learning today from tuning into this show? The first thing is just what was his temperament, you know, during great years or after great years. The second thing is the many stages of Buffett's investment strategy after a great investing year. And the third thing that people will be able to take away from today is why it pays off, you know, to be honest and transparent with how you conduct your affairs, especially when you have other people behind you that are tracking your investments. So with that being said, I don't think this current economy quite has seen, you know, exactly the same thing as what happened in 95. Uh, But from the time period 1995 to 1999, right before the dot-com bubble, Mm -hmm. what you saw was five years of continual growth, followed by 2000, 2001, 2002, three years of declining growth. So before the eventual market turnaround, and that's brought to you by TheBalance.com. So it's not the exact same situation, but I do think that there are some similarities to be drawn. So the question remains, why would it be wise for us as investors to go back and look at 1995 to see how he navigated it? And and I'm curious for you, Ron, what has been your experience with the Berkshire Hathaway shareholder letters? Well, I've I've enjoyed them through the years. Um, You know, uh, Warren Buffett had a good partner also. His name was Charlie Munger. And uh, Charlie and, and uh, Warren worked, uh, you know, the Hathaway, Berkshire Hathaway, the old Hathaway shirt company. And I, you don't realize this as a young person, but <laughs> they, made, they made dress shirts. There was Arrow and Berkshire Hathaway and, huh? and a few others. Uh, uh, Gant was another shirt manufacturer. But, but anyway, it was, uh, it was a good, solid business. And then these two people, uh, particularly Charlie Munger, and who was uh, an, uh, basically an accountant in his background, but he was every bit as savvy investor as Warren Buffett was. Yeah. And the thing that they do, they did best is that they were patient. They, they bought good stuff, and they, if they owned enough of the shares of a company that they could tweak the company to improve it, they did that. But they were very impatient investors. Hmm. And that's always one of the basic rudimentary recipes for success when you're investing, hmm. is be patient with what you, what you purchase. And I was watching this morning, I was listening on the drive out watching when I got to work, the shareholder meeting from 1995 on video. Mm -hmm. And I guess Munger was known as somebody that was pretty short, quick to the point, wasn't going to say a lot, but it's going to tell you what you need to hear. He was a a fairly (laughs) terse individual in his speaking style. And, and, uh, but yeah, uh, but a good combination and good chemistry, good teamwork with those two. And and in my opinion is as much as I love what Warren Buffett does, I don't think Charlie Munger gets quite enough credit for his the part that he's played in the success of all of this. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. So one of the first quotes that I wanted to take away from Warren Buffett's 1995 Berkshire Hathaway shareholders meeting was he said, there's no reason to do handsprings over 1995's gains. This was a year in which any fool could have made a bundle in the stock market. 
and we did. And to paraphrase, President Kennedy said that a rising tide lifted all yachts. Sounds eerily fam familiar to what's happening in our market today. And so I think I heard on a podcast, you know, when you're a cab driver or now your Uber driver is giving you stock tips, you know you need to start being careful <laughs> in the market. Uh, and one of the early points made in the 1995 Berkshire Hathaway letter was that the yearly growth rate of earnings per share from 1965 to 1995 was 33.4%, which is really an incredible statistic. And to make sure that we're all on the same page, earnings per share is a company's net income divided by the number of shares outstanding. And this can be a great statistic because it can give you an idea of how fast that company is growing. And according to Phil Town, the well-known hedge fund manager, earnings per share is one of the most important measurements of a company's profitability, and it's really well, widely used. And this is what Buffett had to say about his success over that period of time. I really thought this was interesting. He said, these results have not sprung from some master plan that we concocted in 1965. In a general way, we knew what we hoped to accomplish, but we had no specific opportunities, or we didn't know what specific opportunities might make it possible. Today, we remain similarly unstructured over time. We expect to improve the figures in both columns, talking about earnings per share, right. but have no roadmap to tell us how that will come about. So, Ron, my question to you, man, is what do you think about that quote right there? Well, there again, I think what he's doing is he's pointing the direction or pointing us as, as shareholders or potential investors is, to, is the patience factor. Is that, you know, the market is not only unknown, but it's unknowable what, a, what the market is going to do. And that really shouldn't, uh, that shouldn't necessarily be our focus. What our focus ought to be is to patiently are to buy good quality companies and be very patient with them because in time they will uh, they will prove out and they, as they always have and it you know people buy and sell shares of stock based on what the earnings are and mutual fund managers do that hmm. and and individual investors who buy individual stocks do that uh, and that's just that's just the that's not a secret sauce but that's just fundamental investing and yep. that's where Warren Buffett I think he outshines many many people in that he's just a basic fundamental investor. I mean, how glitzy can you be when you live in Omaha, Nebraska, <laughs> in the same house that you, you've lived in for the last 40 or 50 years? Yeah, yeah. It's not, and I've mm. seen the house, it's not a huge home. It's not very mm. big. That's, that's awesome to be able to look back on. So after reading further into this letter, the shareholder letter, Buffett expressed his admiration for the companies that he liked by saying, we're never going to lose our appetite for buying good companies with good economics and excellent management. He then went on to tell a cool story about how they not only acquired Geico that year, but they also acquired Hellsberg Diamonds. And as it turns out, Hellsberg Diamonds started off in 1915 right here in Kansas City, Missouri. When I say right here, I mean the state of Missouri, right. not right here where we are. Uh, but he expressed his concern for acquiring companies, something that I've come to learn more about now that I've gotten into this industry. Just when you combine two management teams, there's always questions. There's sure. always questions as if they're going to be as right. efficient as a year prior. And, and it's cool to see because when they made that acquire, when they acquired Hellsberg Diamonds, the guy that was running the company, Barnett Hellsberg Jr., actually shared a large number of the proceeds from that sale to Berkshire Hathaway with some of his higher-ups in his company and really redistributed that wealth amongst his company, which Warren Buffett said, was a really good tale of just how well the culture had been developed right. inside of Hellsburg. So right. I thought that was a cool indicator, and it gave an idea of the leadership tendencies that were shown 
at Hellsberg Diamonds. Well, that's the kind of companies that he typically mm. ferrets out and he looks for is those companies that are are well run but maybe need to be tweaked in one way or another to really get them to peak performance. Yeah, I definitely agree. So my next question for you, Ron, is what do you think? Do you think there's a correlation between leadership and generosity and just how generous leaders can be that are running a successful company? Well, I, I think it's I think it's the secret. I mean, I <laughs> think that's uh, it shouldn't be so hard to figure out that if you have people in your management team and you have people in your workforce force that uh, that do an outstanding job and have helped you to grow uh, your business to a certain point. I, I think it's only I think good managers and smart managers are first to recognize that and to share that wealth. I mean, after all. We've seen so many labor union situations and management situations where it's us against them, and that never wins. It does not. It does not win. Smart owners and smart managers are those or those who share their success with the people who help them get them to where they are, and they share that wealth at the same time. It's just not a difficult thing to, hmm. to do, but our own human selfishness sometimes, I guess, <laughs> it, it just keeps us from doing that. But it shouldn't. And I think it's just a rare combination to see, you know, somebody that is yes. able to have great success yes. but still have that humility that comes along with it. You bet. And just a reminder, you're listening to the Journey Mindset Podcast, and we are Cornerstone Financial Consultants, and you can connect with us at thejourneymindset.com or reach out to us at 636-239-5000. So one of the other cool aspects of this 1995 shareholder meeting letter that I was reading was Warren Buffett talks a lot about value drivers mm -hmm. and what are the specific value drivers with the companies that you're investing in. And the second thing is what are the value drivers of the companies that he was acquiring? So he got to talking about Geico mm -hmm. and that was one of the right. uh, acquisitions that they made in that year. And he expressed one of the big reasons that he knew and he felt like Geico was going to be a good investment going forward was because of their rock bottom operating costs that they were able to operate with and it gave me a, a really good idea of his philosophy and then he went on to say that he looks for economic castles protected by what he called unbreachable moats within the companies that he was looking at and I just think it's a great discussion point because you know we're trying to be as wise as possible mm -hmm. with our investments right. heading into 2021 a year where the valuations are a little bit higher a lot higher in some cases and what you want to try to find is those value drivers and those resilient companies that are going to be able to sustain through the inevitable market downturns. And, and Buffett goes on to outline what he feels like the three things that investors need to pay attention to are, and number one being the company's level of profitability. And I went over and, like I usually do, talked to Aaron Weidman, right. uh, one of the other advisors in the office about this, uh, because we've talked about how some companies choose to be profitable or not. And Aaron encouraged me to look at the earnings growth or the sales growth of a company uh, over the profitability, because like we talked about, profitability sometimes is a choice given today's market environment. And then he gave me a good example. And this is not us giving an investment recommendation of this company. It's just an example that applies to this situation. So Netflix recently announced that, they, that they're going to be cash flow neutral this year and cash flow positive every year after th 2021 and will no longer need external financing. It's a good spot to be in. It's really cool, which will be the first time that it's profitable since 2011, right. is, which is what you see with a lot of companies doing this. So the average investor might ask themselves, why would they have decided to not be profitable You know, the 10 years prior leading up to this decision? And according to an article in CNBC, 
uh, it states that in the title of the article is Netflix will consider buybacks as it returns to positive cash flow after 2021 by Alex Sherman. It states for the past 10 years, Netflix has upended the media industry by taking a leap of faith. It has spent billions of dollars on licensed and original content each year to boost its catalog and along the way morphed into a replacement product for traditional pay TV in millions of households. Since 2011, Netflix has raised $15 billion in debt to help pay for this content. The company said that it plans to pay back its outstanding debt that matures in 2021 with more than $8 billion of its cash on hand. So what's the lesson that we're trying to point out here? That's a great question. You know, if you're going to try to make an investment in a company in 2021, it's very wise to understand how that earnings growth for that particular company is progressing, but it's equally as important to understand what the company is doing with that money that they're earning, and is that an upward trend? So, Ron, do you have any, any thoughts on the Netflix decision to become you know, cash flow neutral this year? Well, I think, it's, uh, I think that's uh, where most uh, uh, CEOs or CFOs would pre- prefer to position their company. That's, that's where we all uh, uh, work to, to get to. Uh, there are some, of course, some, some tax advantages about carrying debt. And then, uh, but I, I think it's always encouraging when you see uh, a company like Netflix. And what I really think is happening there is you're looking at the maturity of a very, very young company. Yeah, growth cycle. And, and you <laughs> bet. And, and, uh, and now they've got the ability to pay off not maybe 100% of their debt, but carry so little debt. Uh, based on their profitability, that shows me as an investor and as a as a potential shareholder what that says to me that this is a company that's probably a good idea to maybe take a look at for some future investing. And here again, hmm. we're not in a position in this talk in this talk show or this podcast to, to make recommendations, and that's not what we're doing. Hmm. What we're doing simply is pointing out that this is a potential type of company that you'd want to look at for potential growth and profitability because they've 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 not completely turned the corner but they've they've really they can see where the corner is they yeah. know where it is and that was going to be my next point was you can really track the earnings growth of companies over a long period of time and in an environment like this in 2021 where you're seeing right. such high valuations what's some of, the, some of the wisest things that we can do is to keep track of those companies that have had sustained earnings growth over a yes. long period of time. Yes. Because, I mean, what else are you going to look for? What else do you want in an investment if, if that's something that you're looking to do over a long period of time? And it's paid off for those people that made that investment in Netflix. When, when, that whenever you have a company that is pretty solid in the market and it has good management, you'll almost always, mm. almost always, in the in here again, it comes down to patience. You'll see this if you give a company a long enough time horizon to grow and really write itself and make that move from a very young company to a mature company. Those that are well managed will typically get to this point. This I love is, it. This is where this is this is when you finally arrived as a company, mm. and uh, uh, to be able to, you know, like, like an individual, it's always nice to. To, uh, to have things, but you have to pay your bills. And, and now Netflix <laughs> is in a position where they can pay their bills. Yeah, absolutely. So the next phase of the 1995 Berkshire Hathaway shareholders letter that we're examining today to try to learn how we can become better investors in 2021. And it's a really cool section. Uh, it's Buffett. He took an entire page to list out 
the bad investments that he made that year. Mm -hmm. And by bad, I mean just the ones that underperformed, which was really cool for me to see, uh, you know, somebody that is trusted to have managed a lot of money. He goes back through and the three business areas that he had underperformed were number one was shoes. Number two was newspapers. And number three was encyclopedias. A little bit of a different time back then. <laughs> yeah, 1995, sure. Absolutely. Uh, uh, but his point was he went back through each investment for that particular year, and he let us know why he thought those investments didn't work out. And for the shoe industry, it was because as a whole, the industry suffered that year, which is why it underperformed. Mm-hmm. Newspapers just kind of had a bearish outlook going forward. And the other thing for encyclopedias is that it was getting increased competition from these things called CD-ROMs, CD-ROMs <laughs> um, which was a you know blast from the past. And I'm sure you had plenty of CD-ROMs back in the day, Ron. <laughs> I know I sure did. <laughs> yeah, we, we certainly did. Oh, man. And so I'll ask you this, Ron. Uh, you know, in the years that investors experience investing losses, like Warren Buffett was able to elaborate on, how do you think they should process that? Well, I think you should know when you make that first dollar investment into uh, an investment that's in the market mm. that there, are, there is potential, and we buy investments for their potential growth over time. But I think you have to have a mindset that will tell you that if not this year, then next year. It has to be a lesson in patience because mm. there is not one investment that I know of that has good sustained growth that starts off and takes off like a rocket. It just doesn't work that way. Hmm. Investing in companies have, uh, you can kind of look at it like uh, going up going up a set of stairs with, uh, with a yo-yo. The yo-yo is the market, and it's up and it's down over, over day to day, and it, uh, it, you shouldn't really, for all intents and purposes, shouldn't pay that much attention to it because as you, you rise up the stairs, you're, you're gaining and growing, and that's what you have to look at with a company. But it takes, once again, it's a lesson in patience. And I love asking myself the question, do I see this company in a better position three years down the road, five years down the road, ten years down the road? And right. if I do, you know, I'm willing to take yes. some of those short-term losses in hopes that, in anticipation that I did my research on the front end and have the possibility of seeing some yes. positive gains over the long term. And it's cool because these letters were actually put together into a book that people can go back. I think mm-hmm. the, the guy that co-authored it or that probably did, mo- did most of the work is named Max Olson. Uh, but it's just a great way for us to be able to go back and learn and to be able to see some of the mistakes that Warren Buffett points out that he made. And I think it's just a feather in the cap of people that want to be looking for great management with their investments. And sometimes the best way to do that is to learn more about who's running the companies or who's running the funds. And so, Ron, what do you think about leaders of companies choosing to take that honest approach to be more open with the people that they're leading? Well, I think that's the, I think if there's any secret sauce, I think that's, I think Hmm. that's it right there. We've watched uh, through uh, Hollywood so many, uh, the Wolf of Wall Street, and so many of those those movies where there's a ruthless ruthlessness about company management and CEOs, and I know that in the corporate world that does exist, and I'm not naive. But here again, the people and the managers and the CEOs, the CFOs, and those people who are actually running sound companies. Uh, uh, they have an honesty about them that mm. that that people really gravitate to. And that's that's really what a leader is. It's a person who people, when he walks in a room, can say, hey, that's the guy that leads my company. He's a terrific man because he's 
number one of the attributes has to be honesty. Yeah. I mean, it's it's yeah. just it's just imperative. Now, having said that, I see that we you know in this country we have legislated honesty from our CEOs. They have mm. to sign off and attest yep. that their we company like that. books are, <laughs> are, you know, to our best of my knowledge, mm. is is it's accurate, true and accurate. Yeah. It doesn't work that way in other parts of the country. China is an example. This is no slap in the face of the Chinese, but maybe it is to the extent that there's not always, uh, their numbers are not always published with honesty in mind. Yeah. And, and I think that's something when you're an investor and you're foreign investing, you have to keep your eye on. I definitely agree. And one of my favorite things to be able to do when I'm looking at a new company is to watch videos on the CEO. I'll go back and just kind of get a general feel for how does he talk about his business mm -hmm. or how does she talk about right. her business and what did they see as the vision in the future. And if I'm an employee of that particular company, what I want to be working for him, you know, and I can go back and look through the glass door ratings mm -hmm. to see uh, what the, you know, uh, culture of that company is like. And right. it just gives you a better feel. Uh, for what the future of that potential well, company may hold. You know, the Jack Walsh's who ran GE and, and the Warren Buffett's of the world, they were excellent. And Warren Buffett, in his case, he still is. And he doesn't hesitate to say, hey, you know, folks, this is where I missed. Yep. You know, yep. this was you know, everything. <laughs> we, we had done our homework. Everything looked right. And, and it just it just didn't work. Uh, good managers can always do that. They're in the they're they're. They're not shy about standing in the spotlight when things have gone well for the corporation. And they're, but they also know when they have to shoulder the blame when things don't necessarily go right with the corporation. It's just honesty, and I think mm. that, that speaks to the integrity of management, and I think that's something you always have to look for. I totally agree. I totally agree. And we are not doomsday investors. We're not people that no. you know look for the worst and what's coming ahead. But I do think that this final quote is a great one to keep in mind that Warren Buffett had to say it to his shareholders in 1995, which was, though the per share intrinsic value, we've talked about intrinsic value on a past show, has grown at an excellent rate during the past five years, its market price has grown even faster. The stock, in other words, has outperformed the business. And he goes on to say that kind of market outperformance cannot persist indefinitely neither for Berkshire nor any other stock. Inevitably, there will be periods of underperformance as well. The price volatility that results, though endemic, and I had to look up what endemic meant, <laughs> <laughs> which means regularly found in, to public markets is not to our liking. What we would prefer instead is to have the market price of Berkshire precisely track its intrinsic value. Were the stock to do that, every shareholder would benefit during his period of ownership in exact proportion right. to the progress that Berkshire itself made during that period. So he's essentially saying he's not a huge fan of the company's stock price being way up here and the intrinsic value of the company being way down here. Right. And, and so I'm curious for you, Ron, I mean, how do you rationalize just that concept right now heading into 2021? Well, we, we paid pretty close attention. We talked about this in past uh, podcasts mm. about the price-to-earnings ratio. Mm. And uh, companies that, that are successful and have good earnings, uh, people typically want to own those companies. Well, what can happen is, is those temp companies can be overbought. In other words, their stock can be overbought. And that pushes that price-to-earnings ratio to a, an unhealthy level. And here again, back in the old days when I first started in this business 30-some-odd years ago, a price-to-earnings ratio of 20, 
a price 20 times the earnings was about the bellwether. That's about yeah. where you wanted to stay. Hmm. And then companies like Walmart came through and, and, <laughs> and continued to grow quarter after quarter after quarter with multi price to earnings multiples of 35 and 40 times earnings. So, hmm. you know, that, that standard or that bellwether uh, uh, statistic or that, that ratio didn't necessarily last. But still, I think the bottom line is, is it's something that you have to keep your eye on it. You can't... Uh, it's more difficult to make money on a stock that's trading at a 50 times earnings multiple than a solid company that's trading trading at 15 times earnings. Mm. I mean, there's there's just less earnings potential there, potentially. So. so true. So to conclude our show today and to draw some takeaways from Warren Buffett's 1995 letter to his shareholders, we can conclude that, number one, it pays to be self-aware in a market that is performing really, really well. Number, number two is keep your investment strategy open be, and be willing to put in the work. Number three is pay attention to good management. You've been hammering on that all day. Yep. Not only how much the company earns consistently, but how they treat their employees. Number four is understand the value drivers of the companies that you invest in. Number five is pay attention to financial statements. Number six is be humble and learn from your mistakes. And then I think we got one more for the people before we head them on home. Understand that the stock price of a company is not always indicative of what the underlying value of that company is. So, Ron, do you have Too any true. final thoughts on our seven takeaways for today's show? Well, I think those are good fundamental rules to follow when you're, uh, when you're buying an investment. And I think that also works on the other side of the coin when you're selling an investment. You can, you can hold these standards up to, uh, to your buying and selling activity. And I think uh, it's, very, very, uh, it's very fundamental and I think it's very basic to successful uh, trading in the stock market. But ultimately, the utmost thing and what we're really talking about here, it's, it takes research, it takes work, and it takes patience. I love that. I love that. So the reason for the podcast and the real heart behind all of our messages lies in the gospel. We believe that God sent his only son, Jesus, to this world with the message of good news. The good news is that we as humans do not need to earn our way into heaven. Instead, we need to repent of the current way that we live living for ourselves in our own personal glory, and instead choose to invite Jesus into our lives. And uh, choose to invite Jesus into our lives to follow his word, what we believe to be truth. Ultimately, we believe Jesus, after living a perfect life here on earth, was put to death for no other reason other than saying he was the son of God, thus being put to death for our sins, which he knew was going to happen. Again, the good news of the gospel of Jesus is something we did nothing to earn. It was a free gift from God. We know after Jesus died, we believe he rose again three days later, appearing to those on earth who had deserted him before his death, ultimately ascending back into heaven. After Jesus ascended back into heaven, we receive what Jesus called the Holy Spirit to guide our lives in decision-making. We now have the freedom to live for God, bringing glory to God as a response to the sacrifice that he made for us on the cross. We wholeheartedly believe that we were all created to do good works, Rooted in truth, what we know to be God's word, driven by love. With this newfound freedom, as a response to this good news. So as always, be sure to connect with us at thejourneymindset.com or visit our company page, cornerstone2invest.com and reach out to us at Cornerstone Financial in Washington, Missouri at 636-239-5000 if you'd like to connect to learn more about what it would look like to invest with us here at Cornerstone Financial. Our goal is always to get to know your particular situation and to see how we can help. 
Big thank you for tuning in today. We love being on 99.9 KFAV.